0: What a great song. It's good to worship with you, to lift high Christ. We're going to now seek to do that through the preaching of his word and responding to his grace portrayed in the scriptures given to us as a gift. And so I'd like you, well, I would say I, I'd invite you to, to pray with me. Lord, would you send us your Holy Spirit by and through the preaching of your word an outpouring of your spirit from heaven to fill your church so that those who already believe in Jesus would be made anew even more. And for those who are on the lines of faith trying to figure it out or not even close at all thinking to themselves that, that you would call by grace and mercy to reveal your awesome character, how trustworthy and kind you are, how loving you are by sending us a Savior in whom we can take full pleasure and delight in. You're the one who satisfies souls. You're the one who preaches the sermon. And so, Spirit, use your word and bless us in our time together this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen? Well, um, for some reason or another, I, uh, I had a memory come to me this week of this conversation that I had with my Uncle John. My Uncle John's from Jersey. He's uh, five foot five, jet black, hair Italian with a mustache. He kind of talks like Joe Pesci. And uh, he's one of my best friends. And funny enough, the conversation that I mentioned or, or mentioned to you was a conversation over the uh, the topic of counterfeit money. And uh, I don't know why I remembered the conversation per se, but it just kind of sparked my interest again this week, and so I went online and began to research because I had this great interest, and um, I found um, an article. It was prepared by the Federal Research Division in the Library of Congress, um, put out in partnership with the U.S. Department of Congress and uh, the Trademark Office, so um, what I'm about to read to you is actually legit. Um, The second paragraph of the article was super telling um, concerning the topic of counterfeit currency. It said this, and I quote, As of 2018, counterfeiting is the largest criminal enterprise in the world, with domestic and international sales of counterfeits and pirated goods totaling between an estimated $1.7 and $4.5 trillion a year. That's a higher amount than both uh, drugs and human trafficking combined. And so the article um, naturally went on to talk about the devastating effects that uh, counterfeit currency has had on the global economy, especially in the U.S. And then I, then I read about all the details as to how bankers and federal agents um, uh, seek to hinder this counterfeiting work. Local banks and federal agents, this is what they do, some of the techniques they use. They um, have this little special pen that they uh, press this button on in order to shine lights on these dollar bills to see inconsistencies or um, uh, irregularities. Another thing that they do is use this money machine. They send the money through, and the machine is able to detect some of the things that they're um, looking for. And then they have this examination device, a microscope, that they're able to take those dollar bills that they have questions about, place it under the microscope, and in the greatest of details, zoom in to see if what they're looking at is indeed false. And here's the last thing I found out about this false currency um, investigation it's that federal agents uh, don't learn to identify counterfeit money by studying all the different forms of counterfeit dollar bills in circulation, but rather what they do is seek to study genuine currency until they master it in order to be able to identify what truly is the real thing. In other words, it is by knowing what is authentic that enables them to recognize the money that isn't. Why would I start off by reading to you or giving to you this example? Well, because what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that God has given us the Scriptures to do this exact thing with our faith proclamation. You see, many people say that they are Christian, say that they believe in God and or Jesus and that the Bible is a good thing, but how do you and I know if what they're saying is trustworthy and or the gospel that they claim to have is indeed actually true? Am I suggesting to you this morning that we go around judging people? Absolutely not. I'm just saying that it's helpful for us to have tools to discern authenticity. Why? Because inauthentic faith, a.k.a. fake Christians, not only affect the church, but more importantly, its people and those around it. And real authentic faith is important to the church because the people of the church are to represent Christ. And so what I'm trying also to suggest to you today is not that we would just use these tools, these discerning tools to examine other people, but I'm also saying that God has given these examination tools for us, for us to do it with our own faith. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, well, James... I don't, I don't need that. I know deep down that my faith is indeed authentically true. I can feel it. Did you know that the Bible says that the human heart is deceptive above all things? Which means that it is indeed possible for someone to think that they are a Christian and or are in a right standing or pleasurable position in front of God and not be? remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And for those who are tempted to think that they know the gospel and are in a safe zone, I'll remind you of 1 Timothy chapter 4, which says to keep a close watch on yourselves and also the teaching that we seek to follow. In other words, we must not trust what we believe to be true of our own lives as faith to be our own judge, but rather what we must do as faithful Christians is turn to God's Word to see what are the marks of true Christian faith, what is truly authentic, and then take it as a mirror to examine what is in our own lives. It is through understanding what God Himself wrote that we will be able to examine our feelings, and our experiences and emotions to see if what we claim is, indeed, gospel truth. This morning, the gospel I'd like to show you, the good news, indeed, is that God has been gracious to give us the scriptures, his word, so that you and I could increasingly know and grow in what is true, authentic, Christ-like, biblical faith and salvation. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're gonna be in the in, in the book of First John chapter five this morning. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, it's all the way towards the right hand side of the book. First John chapter five, and we'll be looking at the first five verses one through five. If you're following along with me, you'll see that the title of the sermon there on the screens is What Are the Marks of Authentic Christian Faith? I'd like to suggest to you this morning three. Number one, love. Number two, obedience. And number three, victory. We're going to begin our time by reading the passage up front again, First John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle John writes this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. that Jesus is the Son of God, my brothers and sisters this is god 's word right now i 'd like to move to point number one and show you what is love. We uh, have now found ourselves in the finally in, in, the, in the fifth chapter of this book. it is the last chapter of this book, and so my opening to you this morning is actually following along with john 's closing here and um as John approaches this final section of his sermon, what I'd like to show you is that he has one big thing on his mind, and that big thing is this. It is for the church to be able to, be, to distinguish between what is an authentic and inauthentic Christian. Here in this context, It might be present in the church that he is writing this sermon to or this letter to, but most definitely he has in mind the surrounding context of the church. Why? Because during this time, there was false prophets and false people who were teaching and holding a false gospel, seeking to remove faithful Christians from the church through that perverted teaching. And if you look there in verse 1, as soon as John defines what is a faithful Christian confession, that is, Jesus is the Christ as the means by which true Christianity is birthed. What he immediately does is move to what must then therefore be the proof. And here in this text he shows us that this proof is twofold. Number one, love for God. And number two, love for his children. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. John's continuing on with, with one of his primary teachers from his first gospel. You'll remember that he recorded this discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus said to Jesus, Jesus, how can a man enter the kingdom of heaven? And do you remember what Jesus said? Truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, What happens to a person during the moment or season of salvation is that true faith in Christ as Savior is awoken by and through an impartation of the Spirit, of God's Spirit, given to that person from within. And after being born again or made new by the Spirit, we, for the first time, are not only able to see our Father in heaven, but just as any good parent would, our Father in heaven then takes us as our new as new children and introduces us to the faces of our new family aka the church aka our brothers and sisters in Christ Christ by the spirit through salvation introduces us to God and God's children. And so here's the logic in this text The logic is this. Everyone who loves the parent loves the child. As Christians through Christ, we are made children. Therefore, we love God when we love fellow Christians. Further, we're able to conclude that a person who claims Christ, whose faith does not inevitably lead to both of these things or just leads to one of these things without the other, has an incomplete and or unbiblical faith. Continuing along with this theme, like I mentioned to you in the beginning of counterfeit money, the teaching is this. It's just like a coin that has two sides. Um, uh, Both pictures are inseparable. So is love for God and love for his children in the church. They cannot be separate. Um, I think as Presbyterians we need to hear this. Of course this idea of love um, is good. Everyone accepts it. This idea of love actually generally refers to the love that Christians have for the universal church. And so this love for the universal church naturally crosses denominational lines. That's a good thing. Some of us need to hear that. It's good. I talk to you Presbyterians. For those of you uh, Baptists who are here, that's good for you. Non-denoms, all of that. It's good for us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and other churches. But guess what John is actually doing primarily here? He's preaching to the local church. And so, the primary gospel geared towards application is this that when someone becomes filled by God, by the Spirit of God, and authentically believes in Jesus, it is impossible for he or she to say that they love Christ and forsake or withhold their presence or love for his local church. And also, the other side is equally true it is not possible to serve Christ. And not love God, or serve Christ's body, His His people, and and not love God. Love for God and love for His people are together inseparable. This is the gospel twofold command and expectation. So I'd like to just for one moment slow down to uh, um, name three fallen condition categories of this teaching. Here, can I just do that for one second? Here's the first category. It's for those who um say they love God, but are not so much into the local church. You might have a great prayer life. You might study the Word. You might try and live holy. You might spend time in personal worship. Maybe spend time with Christians even outside of this place. But did you know that according to the Scriptures, God's primary uh God's primary calling for you is actually here to these people in this local church if you belong to this local church. I'm just speaking right from the scriptures here. John is speaking to the local church. We cannot claim Christ confidently. If we are not intimately connected in love by and through relationship, that's the only way love is done if we are int- not intimately connected with love to the people who are sitting and worshiping next to us. If you're visiting here for the holidays and you're in town, uh, thank you so much for coming. I just wanted for a second, um, build and edify your pastor. Build and edify the church that you come from and its leadership. And most of all, build and edify Christ in whom I'm believing in good faith that your church believes in Christ. Thank you for coming, but when you get back to the place in which you belong, and our members to go back knowing that you belong and your primary calling is to her, that bride. Because this is what we do in the American church. We just kind of hop churches. And it ruins the mission of God. church hopping ruins the mission of God. God's redemptive great world mission, aka the universal church, does not exist without the local church. He has given, Christ has given the local church institution. And so it is by and through the local church only that the great world mission moves forward. That that overarches all categories. When we send out missions, uh, missionaries, they fall into submission and have authority uh, under this local church. Denominational agencies all fall under the, the local church. The buzzword for church is community. A lot of churches like to use that buzzword. We love church community. But John's language here in this text is actually stronger. It's familial. Do you see it? It's family language. Brothers and sisters is what he uses. A.K.A. this place is actually a covenant family, not just a community. A family that makes up community. And so the second category is this. The first category is people who say they love God but do not love the church. The other category is this. Those who love the church but do not love God. Did you know that that's possible? And it breaks my heart because it produces vain churches whose leaders actually are not connected to the vine. You know it's possible to preach the gospel and not know God? You know it's possible to lead a Bible study and not know God? Be a deacon or an elder and not know God? Serve the local church body and not know God? How or what does this look like? Well, it looks like when we don't pray and we just serve people. When we sign up for community groups and volunteer and get involved— But don't spend time in the word. Don't spend time enjoying our maker. Don't spend time taking pleasure in the Savior. Don't spend time being driven to a place of ecstasy in his presence as his word is preached to the heart through personal intimate prayer in the closet alone and away with God. And so this is what happens This is a real possibility that church and its leaders and its people can do all these God things but not know God. And who wants that? Because unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain, we do not want godless leaders who have the veneer of the gospel. We want gospel roots in our leaders. So I'll take a new Christian in leadership over a veteran in the faith any day if that new Christian sincerely loves God and that old Christian is dead inside don't want that it doesn't work it kills churches it hinders mission it produces production who wants that and the third category is this um, those who say they're Christian. And actually don't have one or the other. Those who say that they're Christian. And actually don't have one or the other. Love for God or his church. What I want for us to see here is that these two markers of faith that John is giving us are not duties as much as they are responses from the Spirit's dwelling within. What does that mean? What I'm saying is that then these two commands to love God and each other are not able to be achieved without God Himself dwelling within the heart. And for those of us who do have the Holy Spirit, who have encountered the love of God, I want to remind you that this is your main motivation and fuel the love of Christ. That saved you apart from you having done anything for him. Before you did anything for God, while you were caught in sin, he loved you and gave himself for you. Lavished his love on you. Gave gave you his Holy Spirit. And it is from these things that life and ministry and faithfulness and obedience overflow. God longs for his love from his people to overflow into that family community so that Christ could be known. But that's only possible for those who have received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And Christ longs for his church to be one, as he and the Father are one, inseparably committed to one another, just as Christ himself and the Spirit are inseparably in triune relationship committed to one another. This is what our fellowship and family should look and feel like. And so I love being an American Christian, right? Like, that's cool. I love being an American. I'm proud to wave the flag, but our culture opposes the gospel rhythms of community. It says, come and go as you please. Be autonomous. Be individualistic. Do your own thing. Come and go with the church as you want to go. But Paul, do you remember Paul as he spoke about the church and observed the love that the New Testament church had for Christ and for each other? Let me just just remind you of how he spoke in Ephesians chapter 1. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Colossians chapter 1, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Two applying questions from this text in this first point are this. Do you love the Father? Do you have affections for the Father? Are you attracted to Him? Is God and all of his grace and glory irresistible to you? Is by and through the work of his spirit God himself like a magnetic pull? Is God's presence pleasurable to you? Do you spend time with him? Do you know him? Do you delight in him? Or is God a religious task? A duty? I hope it's the first it's the only way forward. But if it's the second, I want to say with gentleness, just as a help for you, as an aid, I'm, I want to serve you from this pulpit. If God has only been or right now is just a task, that might be an indication that you're not a Christian or that you should have strayed from grace. So instead of telling you that you must love him more or try harder I just wanna tell you the gospel, what is actually true. The only way to move forward from this is by stopping at the cross to remember and believe upon the love of God shown for you in the death of Christ for your sin. God loves you that much. And so the good news of the gospel further is that God wants you to stop serving this church and or the community out of vain activity, but rather be filled with his love First, and then have that love which has filled you motivate you to produce from you good gospel fruit. That's good news. The second question is this If this is your church, do you know and love and actively pursue the people here? Instead of waiting to be pursued, would you pursue as Christ has pursued you. This is the role of the Spirit and Covenant community. That we would not make excuses on divine design, whether we're introverts or extroverts, but that we would kill our selfishness and pride. And for the sake of love, take risks, vulnerable risks, that loves each other because God has loved us. This is what it means to embrace the gospel. God didn't just save us to himself, but he also saved us into a people. This is what it means to re- embrace the story of redemption, the story of redemption that is all about God saving a people and reconciling that people to Himself. And so, for us to embrace the Savior, we must embrace each other. The local church is where the gospel is found. And so, here's some missional questions Would you invite, take a risk? And invite a new family that you don't know here over your house for dinner. If you're a mom, would you ask another mom out for a play date at the park or the pool? If you're a dad or a man, I know this gets really awkward because men don't like to do this, especially. But would you ask another man and or two men out for wings or a beer? So you can fellowship and create relationship? There's always a need here. There's always opportunities to serve. We need gospel leaders. But we only will call gospel leaders for those who are committed to the gospel. Prayer, word, spiritual discipline filled by God, love his spirit, love his church, and love God's global mission. If you're a member here or are considering it, this is what God is calling you to. Amen? I'd like to move now to point number two. That was point number one, love. We're moving now to point number two. There are um, many things as a pastor that I am pleasured to rejoice in. Um, And there's also many things as a pastor that um, I'm broken over to sorrow in. We all rejoice when the gospel bears fruit in someone's heart. We all rejoice when... Christ works in and through a person or a people or a family's lives. But here's one of the greatest sorrows that I've experienced as a pastor. It's when I meet with a a man or a woman in the context of a family and I ask them about their love for or relationship with God or how they know we're a Christian. And the only thing that they're able to tell me is of a memory they had when they were a kid when they accepted Jesus in their heart. That alone, without a life of fruit, of obedience, that alone, by itself, without a life of fruit or obedience, is one of the most heartbreaking things that I, as a pastor, can ever see or hear. Why? Because a prayer doesn't save Christ alone saves. And Christ, when he comes to dwell from within a person, an individual, guess what he does? He bears fruit of obedience. God saves through altar calls and he also saves through the sinner's prayer. That is not what I'm saying. He absolutely does use those things. But if those things... Are dependent on first salvation alone, with no life of fruit or obedience in response of those things. Oh dear Christian, you are in grave danger. The sinner's prayer is dangerous, if used inappropriately or not followed up with accountability and author dependency and covenant community from within the local church. It is dangerous because so many people are depending on that as the ticket to heaven, but there's no such thing. This is why John says what he does in verse 2. Do you see it? By this we know love. How? When we obey his commands... In other words, if we want to know if our faith is actually truly real, a confession of salvation, what, what, or how are we to look at the life of obedience? Which means, just as, or just because we don't feel guilty over our lives or faith, or have a good feeling in a good story that's impactful or memorable, it's not enough. John's teaching here in this text is combating easy beliefism and also subjective experience dependent on a mushy-gushy feeling through emotion. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15? If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give to another advocate, the helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him Because it neither sees nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be with you. Which leads us to the next point of obedience. Look at the next words that he says about commandments. And his commandments, and you see it? And God's commandments are not burdensome. And God's commandments are not burdensome for the Christian. In other words, they are not a heavy yoke. I watched this happen with my friend not too long ago, one of my best friends from college. He's this big 300-pound Samoan football player. He was, uh, two years ago, the strongest man in New Jersey. We, st- we stuck in contact with each other over the years after college, and I started sharing with him the gospel. He was born and raised in a Christian household, thought he was a Christian. He examined his life, saw that there was no obedience, and after I told him the gospel, the only things that I started to see in him were um, a trying harder to be a better dad, a trying harder to be a better husband, a trying harder to read the Word, and those are great things. But every time I talked to him about the faith, there was no affection or desire that came from his mouth. What comes out of the mouth comes, actually starts in the heart. And so there was no heartfelt um, affirmation or affection for God in these religious things. Until not too long ago, about six months ago, I talked to him and things started to change. What happened to my buddy six months ago is that God saved him and filled him with the Holy Spirit. And he went from thinking that God is a thing to do rather than God is a person to behold. And you want to know what happened to my buddy? He started to love prayer. He started to love the word He started to love the church, meet with the pastor, attends men's Bible study, and be filled by it. You can't keep my buddy right now out of God's word. He is on fire. He is drinking from the eternal brook. He is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. This is the mark of a true Christian, one who does not just obey, but obeys with delight because God's commandments are not heavy. I'm calling out to some of you who grew up in the faith and think you're a Christian because your family's Christian. You're not. And I break for you because you're playing pretend and the only person you're fooling is yourself. I love you. I want you to be saved. I want you to know this grace, this life changing grace, so God is not a burden. So He's a delight, He's a treasure. He's He's a treasure hidden in the field. God is a treasure. Only believers know he's a treasure. Can't teach this. By God's mercy, he just gives the Spirit to whom He ever whomever He pleases. And you want to know what the prerequisite is to receiving the gospel, admitting that you never loved or wanted or embraced it. And James. Or in Romans chapter 4, you might know that doctrine of salvation where Paul himself is teaching and he says that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then you might consider um, the opposing doctrine from James chapter 2 as an inconsistency when James chapter 2 says that works without faith are dead. They're not opposing. They actually work hand in hand. Paul was describing the prerequisites and the setting up of faith which bears fruit. It is justification um, that happens by and through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how one is justified and given the Spirit. But James was then moving on from that and saying, do you want to know if you're a true Christian? Look at your works. Let me tell you of how to discern what is true authentic faith. Faith without works is dead. One man named David Jackman said this, We need to be careful in faith because we live in a generation where the sovereignty of emotions and feelings has come to mean that even the word love has been emptied of its moral content. If we judge our love purely at the emotional level, without any regard for the moral obedience which God's law demands, we may find ourselves excusing what is in fact disobedience because we still feel warmly of God. Because we love God, we want to truly please him in our thoughts, words, and actions. And so for us, it is no longer a matter, an external matter of moral duty in obeying God's law as much as it is a pleasing, a dearly loved father that lies at the heart of Christian discipleship. The glory of the new covenant is found precisely in this, in one's inner love and affection, which prompts obedience to God. And so I ask you that: do you obey God out of love for him, or is it something else? I, um, I grew up in the charismatic church. I got saved in the charismatic Church. I praise God for the charismatic church and that it still exists. and um, one of the things that's emphasized in the charismatic church is uh, is experiencing God in worship. Um, they love feeling Him, experiencing Him. And so on Sunday morning, you might see me get my charismatic on when I worship. I was supposed to make you laugh. <laughs> Here's one of the things I've come to learn in faith walk with Jesus. Um, aside from w- experiencing the Holy Spirit in worship, did you know that from the scriptures, one of the most um, practical ways or pathways that God has paid for us to grow and be sanctified and made holy A.K. experience the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, is through ordinary obedience? Actually, I'd say obedience in high and low seasons for the sake of Christ is more powerful and more transformative than just in carrying Him in worship alone. Because worship sets up love for God and then it sends us off on mission to live holy and we experience the holiness of God and grow in the holiness of God when we obey God through thick and through thin. That is the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit fills us for, obedience. And when we obey, we are conformed into the image of Christ. And so do you want to know God? Uh, Obey. If you want to know God, obey. That was point number two, authentic faith obeys. I'd like to finish up our time together by showing you what is true victory? Are you ready for it? Okay. Uh, if you're anything like me in this point of the sermon, you might feel um, heavy. You might feel overwhelmed because you know as well as I do that um, the, the order of this text is a tall order. After hearing God's call to us to love the Father and love each other and live lives full of joyful obedience to God, you li- might, like me, be tempted to feel sorrow. Why? Because you know you haven't made the cut? I haven't made the cut? What is the sobering gospel fact? It's that nobody has made the cut. And so, indeed, if you are a Christian, I say praise God for your confession. This is evidence of the work of the Spirit in you that you know that you have not loved God in the excellent call that He has called you to, nor have you loved His church. And so, we conclude not with ourselves or imperative but we conclude with gospel indicative that God himself is gracious to send us a Savior who indeed has fulfilled all of these laws of demands by and through the person and work of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus did in the context of the Pharisees who preached law to the people? He spoke words of grace. The Pharisees All they ever did was preach law to the people and burden them with something that was inachievable. Something that hindered them from knowing freely what was the love of God. But what did Jesus say to the crowds in light of the pharisaical preaching? What is the gospel? My brothers and sisters, this is the gospel for you. Jesus' words are for you this morning. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is the light yoke and light burden of the gospel? Is that God loved you so much that he sent Christ to be your dying, sinless substitute. So that you might know him truly and be filled with the power to love and hope in Christ alone for salvation alone. And it is by and through this light yoke gospel that true Christians are able to overcome and have victory. Those are the charismatic words. You're an overcomer, and you're victorious. No, they're not. They're gospel. Look what John is doing in verse verse 4. Look what he says. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What did Jesus say about himself to his followers in John chapter 16? He said to them, take heart, for I have overcome the world. The word world here in this book has to do with the pleasures and passions of the flesh and world. That all of us are guilty of pursuing and falling victim to. And what is John saying? You have been given an overcomer. You're not the overcomer. But God loves you and he has given you an overcomer. A victor. And that victor, Christ himself, crushed the head of your greatest enemy on the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent and defeated sin and death itself so that by faith alone, in Christ alone, you may live freely knowing that God will constantly, despite your sin and failure, adore you and love you and be committed to you until the end. And so do you claim Christ alone as your victory and the tool for overcoming in your faith journey life? There is no other gospel but this. I'd like to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as a closing. This is all of our prayer. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where o oh, death is your victory? Where o oh, death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you and also give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. You're covered and saved by and through God alone, through his righteousness alone. You're perfect, his child, you're loved. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Love you, Lord. Thank you for the means of grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible, your spirit. Oh, God, prepare our hearts to receive this gospel in and through this sacrament. And would you make your word edible so our souls can live through these these things. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.